You know, they, they say that there's there's a lot of mental illness in stand-up comedy, and I think that that's what it is. It's it's that it's that I can be joyous in a time of complete despair. That was Daniel talking about the unique perspective alcoholism and bipolar brings to his stand-up comedy. Daniel is a colleague of mine, but we work in different parts of the business, so we don't interact all that much. When I first encountered Daniel at a company event, it's obvious he wasn't your average run-of-the-mill sales manager. He has an honesty and an insight about him that cuts through the day-to-day business bullshit. He makes work interesting and fun. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, we get to know Daniel a lot better. He talks about his comedy and how bipolar means he's two different comedians in one performer. He shares the advice he got from a homeless woman in Central Park that led him to sobriety and reflects on the slightly nihilistic outlook on life that helps him keep things in perspective. Remember, Daniel and I are just two people talking about our personal experience, living with, and managing mental illness. If you're considering making a change to your treatment plan, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Pratt, I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. All right, welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Daniel. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hi, pleasure to be here. (laughs) I never know what to say. When people welcome me places, hi, that's usually what I go with. Very good. Uh, So Daniel, why don't you tell us, uh, who are you? What do you do? Uh, My name is Daniel. I am a sales manager at uh, Gravity Payments, which is based in Seattle. I live in Los Angeles. I also do stand-up comedy and write stuff and podcast and so on and so forth. Awesome. And what is it that we're going to talk about today? Uh, probably bipolar, mostly. I mean, I don't know. I'm a dual diagnosis with that and alcoholism, and we can talk about whatever you want, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm an open book when it comes to that stuff. As you say, dual diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. what was your journey to get to uh, that dual diagnosis? The the first one diagnosed was uh, alcoholism, uh, which is often a self-diagnosed disease. You know, it's not until one says, I am an alcoholic, that you can actually... Because it's 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 such a, a a tricky one. It's it's really impossible to say whether somebody's just a heavy drinker or whether or not it's like a true like addiction, right? Like, I mean, some I feel like there's probably people who could like weekend meth use, you know, and and you would just be like, that guy does as much meth as everyone else, but somehow he could just put, like one day his doctor could be like, man, I feel like you're doing too much meth, and he'd be like, yeah, all right, I'll lay off, and then he's just done. And that's the same way with alcohol, and like, and I just couldn't stop. So, just walk us through kind of the timeline here. So, uh, well, so I worked for this company for a little while, and um, I was a mover in New York City, which is the f- toughest and most fun job I've ever had, and probably like the longest job I ever had until now, uh, because you can be a fuck up as a mover, uh, which is great, and. Um, it would, but my drinking was just getting so, so bad that like I was late to work all the time. I smelled like booze all the time. I was sweating out of, out of control on jobs and like, and one night 
I had to work early the next morning. It was like a Sunday night. And my boss texted me at like 10 p.m. And I was already in bed because I had to work. I had to be at work at like 7. And he goes, hey, come have a beer with me. And I was like, man, I'm already in bed. You know I got to work tomorrow. And he's like, just have one. And he he liked cocaine and, and so did I. And, uh, <laughs> and I like after like 20 minutes of texting back and forth and me saying no, 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 I finally went and met him. And the next thing I know, it's like 2 in the morning. You know what I mean? And he, I was like, I got to go. I got to work in like four or five hours or whatever. And he's like, oh, I already like got somebody to cover you tomorrow. And I got really mad that he had done that. Wow. And he wouldn't let me ride. And we got in this huge fight. And I like, I literally picked my bike up and carried it home. I quit the company and I had a company phone. I gave the phone back and my dad's number was in that phone. And my dad was coming to visit in like a week or two. And he called my dad and they together arranged an intervention with a few other friends it's funny my parents were already coming to town and they wanted to have breakfast one of the days and they were like make sure you're here by 10 like over and over and over and over and over and i was like oh fuck this is an intervention i guarantee it and i get there and they're like we have breakfast and they're like hey we're gonna go somewhere and i was like god damn it and my dad's like (laughs) he's like I want you to know it's an intervention. I was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go, and my boss was there, my old boss at this point, and I kicked him out. I said, you guys can intervene, but he can't be here. I and the, But there was an interventionist. There was like a specialist, oh, wow. and, and they had somehow already pre-de- predetermined Hazelden. I think there's a lesson there, which is if you're going to breakfast and you think there's going to be an intervention, one, you've probably got a problem. Mm-hmm. And two, there's probably going to be an intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you ever think there's going to be an intervention, the first part's a, a, a given. You definitely have a problem. If you, if ever in your, this is a, just a heads up, if you're listening, if you ha- ever in your life are like, oh, God, I shouldn't go to this, there's going to be an intervention. Even if there's not, even if there's not, uh, you have a problem. Yeah. I think it's the old, if you think you might be an alcoholic. Right, 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 right. You're probably an alcoholic. Right. right. If you're, if, ah, yeah, it's so, it's so obvious and it's so silly. If you, the, one of the, que- there's like a test, right? There's like a 30 question thing of like, mm. do you do this? One of the questions should be, are you taking this test? <laughs> <laughs> Just because if you say, and then that one is the only one that matters. Are you taking this test? You're a hundred percent. No one's ever taken this test on accident. So you went to rehab. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Hazelden. Hazelden, Center City, Minnesota. Okay. Shout out, one of the biggins. Yeah, yeah. I've heard. I've read some of Hazelden's. Yeah, they they put out. They're a they're a big publishing yeah. house as well. A uh, little red book, right? They do the little red book. They have like um, like one day at a time or something like that. They got like a thousand books. They got it covered. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you went to Hazelden. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did you spend there? What was that experience I was in like? the full 28. Okay. And then I declined aftercare. The, my counselor kept saying like, you should, you know, stay a little longer because they have like a, they have like a, like an extension. And I was like, nah, I got to get back to New York. I got shit to do, <laughs> which I had literally, <laughs> I had quit my job. I, <laughs> got your bike to pick up, right? Yeah. My bike was somewhere. And, um. I was like stand-up comedy didn't want me anymore. I had quit my job. Nobody liked me. 
Yeah. And I was like, I got to go back to New York. And they were like, well, what if you just stayed in Minnesota for a little while and like lived in like a sober living in like St. Paul or something like that? And I was like, that's, I'm not St. Paul. Are you kidding me? And, uh, and they, and then they were like, well, what about a sober living in New York? We could probably find one of those. Nah, that's not going to work. And I just kept turning down everything. I finally said yes to outpatient, which I promptly stopped going to, um, when I got there. But it's funny. Eventually I, uh, when I, after I did like quit drinking for real, for real, like a, a ways later, I remembered that on the first day of rehab, they took my picture and I was like, I wonder what I looked like. And so I, I called them and I said, can I have that picture? And they said, you have to fill out a medical request form. And they emailed it to me. And on that form, you could request everything. And it was like, do you want your doctor's notes? Do you want your counselor notes? Do you want blah, blah, blah? And I was like, oh, I want everything. And I read my counselor notes and the word unwilling must have been in there 150 times. It was just over and like every session we had, it was like unwilling, unwilling, unwilling. It was so great. Uh, yeah, I didn't care for it. But <laughs> what finally got you to willing? Oh, man, I love this story. The actual end was like nine months later. I, I, I had gone back out to drink in and it just got worse and 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 worse. And I somehow had gotten a job at another moving company probably because I had, you know, five years of experience in that field and, and was like sort of cleaned up at the time that I applied. And I was working for that company, but I was working in the office because I had kind of been managing the other company and um, tricked them <laughs> into giving me like a job. And I got to this point where I went out on a Friday night, and the only people that were hanging out with me at this point were my coworkers who didn't know my past. They were all scoundrels because it was like a sales office, and we would go out and drink and eventually find drugs and whatever. And it was a Friday night, and I went out with this guy, and he got really drunk. And I the whole night, I wanted cocaine, and then he got really drunk, and I was like, you need cocaine. We should find it. Right. So I, I, I found yeah, the I excuse to get drugs. <laughs> Um, so we got some cocaine and we did it. And then, um, I ended up just doing, I bought a bunch and I ended up just doing it the rest of the weekend. And then Monday came around and I worked the noon to nine shift, by the mm -hmm. way, and I could not get out of bed to go to work. And so I called out, emailed out. And then the next day my roommate was like, Hey, do you still have a job? <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, I just had yesterday off because I worked a Saturday or something like that. And then I left the house, but I still could not get to work. I was out of Coke, but I was still drinking as much as humanly possible, like just round the clock. Like I was literally drinking and I don't I don't say this to ever. I very rarely talk about how much I drank, but it was it was a lot like I was drinking two solid liters of whiskey a day. Wow. It's um, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Plus bar time usually. Plus like a, a couple hours in a bar of like beers and whiskeys and stuff like that. And this was all just maintenance. I wasn't even feeling drunk anymore. And so I was like emailing out of work and this was Tuesday now. And, but I couldn't, I couldn't be at home because my roommate couldn't know that I wasn't going to work and I couldn't go to work. And we lived on the Upper East Side where I lived in a living room, mind you. Like it was not fancy Upper East Side. Like I was in a living room. So I just started going to Central Park and just day drinking and napping in the shade in Central Park in like August. And I did that Tuesday and then I did it Wednesday. And on Wednesday, I like my rent check bounced. Like it hadn't been called to my attention yet, but my rent check had, like I knew by the bank, but no one at the building had told me yet. And then 
I get an email. I get a voicemail from my boss that's like, "Hey, you're missing a lot of work. We need to have a chat next to next time you come in," and that means you're fired. And <laughs> just if anyone ever gets that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. also that means you're fired. And a lot of handy practical tips for yeah, like, yeah. how to handle how to handle meeting, unexpected meetings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so if, if you know HR calls you suddenly, right, that can often be a yeah. If it's if it's if it's your third day out in a row and you're day drinking in Central Park oh. and you had had an intervention nine months ago, um, and your rent check is bounced and your boss calls and says we need to have a talk next time you're in, you're done. Uh, don't bother going in, uh, which I didn't. And so then the next day goes around and. I just, man, it's over. Like at that point, it's over, right? I, I don't, I no longer have an apartment and I no longer have a job. And I probably had like $200 to my name. And, and I'm just sitting in Central Park and I'm like looking around and, you know, there's a lot of homeless in, in that park. And I'm looking at everybody and I'm just like, this is it. This is me now. Like this is my life. And I'm gross. Like I am bloated and red and my hair is a mess and I smell terrible and I have horrible facial hair, I'm sure. And um, and I was out of whiskey at that point. I, what I would do is I would buy a bottle on the way to work and I would drink it all at work. And then on the way home, I would buy another one and I would drink that to fall asleep. And then I would usually wake up with like an inch or two at the bottom of the bottle and that's what I would drink in the shower or whatever. And I'd finish that and I was just you know, figuring out what I was going to do to kill myself basically. And, um, cause that's where I was at. I was, I was, I was done. And I was sitting on this bench after that. And this homeless woman who, uh, who I can only describe as the, the pigeon lady from home alone Two, lost in New York. So she's just covered in coats and scarves and rags and, and filthy and 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 she walks up out of a crowd she's like i'm just sitting on a bench and there's all the tourists and whatever and she comes up out and she goes you should stay out of the sun because my face was just so red from being drunk for 10 straight years (laughs) and and i i couldn't even like get the like i was like i haven't i'm not i haven't been in the sun (laughs) and she goes no for real use sunscreen and then she just goes back into the mist and and that was it that was the moment when a visibly homeless person like gave me unsolicited <laughs> life advice <laughs> no like unsolicited commentary on my outward appearance do you know what i mean yeah. um and and i was just like fuck what am i doing like i like i went to private catholic school growing up do you know what i mean like my my parents are like successful and like this is what i'm doing um like and i'm smart you know what i mean like i'm smart and i'm uh capable and and not that that's you know makes me better than anyone or or better than any situation but i was just like i'm wasting everything that i i have i just couldn't bring myself to kill myself like i just couldn't do it because like and I heard someone talk about this one time and, and it's and it's exactly how I felt, which is just like I didn't want to hurt other people anymore. And and killing myself would do that. Um and so I fucking called my dad and he bought me a ticket home and that was it. And you're lucky. Oh man. Right? You kidding me? Yeah. I couldn't be luckier. Yeah. That's the best thing that ever like it. I, I can't I can't imagine what it's like for people who don't have that. Yeah. That absolutely. lifeline. You know what I mean? 
We might, may have ended up staying in Central Park advising other drunks that they should wear sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe I could have been somebody else's like guiding light, you know? I mean, God bless that woman, but I don't ever want to be on that bench again. You know what I mean? And, uh, and yeah, like that, like make, the, the phone call, the phone call was what put me on the road. You know what I mean? Like being able to, and like, that's what it is, right? Like I, I, I'd like to think that if my dad had been like, fuck you, which he had like all but disowned me at that point. Um, if he had said, fuck you, I'd like to think that I would have found another option. I would have checked into the Salvation Army or, you know, gone to a hospital or, or, or whatever it takes. Um, but luckily, like I was, I was, I had a, a, a very forgiving old man. If you spend time in recovery programs, you'll often hear people use the phrase, reached my bottom, which is a way of saying things had got so bad, you decided you had to commit to a recovery program. But bottom isn't always the first time things get bad. For example, for Daniel, his family had already staged an intervention and sent him to rehab, but that wasn't enough to reform his drinking. He still had to find a deeper bottom, penniless, drunk, and getting life advice from a homeless woman in Central Park for him to truly want to stop drinking. In the next section, we'll turn our attention to Daniel's second condition, bipolar. We'll look at how he approaches management, the difficulty of separating the symptoms of alcoholism and bipolar, and we'll get our first look at Daniel's pragmatic outlook on life. What point was it after that that you ended up going to see a, a psychiatrist and you were diagnosed with bipolar? So I had already been diagnosed, oh, okay, cool. but uh, because that was like right when I got out of rehab I see. and started drinking again. Um, but I had stopped taking my meds at that point because I couldn't, I like couldn't bring myself to go to the shrink. Like I just kept missing appointments, and and uh, and then I weaned myself off of a very dangerous medication to stop taking. <laughs> And which uh, was which is lamotrigine, okay. Which is a, it is a it is often used for bipolar, but was originally created as an anti seizure, and so like withdrawing from that can be very dangerous. Um, and so I I like was like running low, and so I started taking like half the dose, and then I started breaking those in half, and right. then I and yeah, and and was having like heart palpitations, <laughs> just like I'll get through it, and um. But then I, uh, about a month or two after I, I came back to Seattle and, um, like got, got a clear head, I started seeing, uh, someone again and got re-diagnosed and re-prescribed. And it's very common for people with bipolar to abuse alcohol in particular, but oh, I man, think a yeah. whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people who are, uh, who have quit drinking, who identifies bipolar. Like, I'd say at least half. <laughs> it's a lot, man. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your experience of, of bipolar. Like, what has, what does that look like through your life? I mean, it's hard to say, right? Because, like, so much of my life before the diagnosis was self-medicated, you know, and it's hard to say, like, what was drunken lethargy versus what was, like, a downswing and what was, like, a cocaine-induced rush right. versus what was, like, an actual like manic, manic episode, yeah. episode, right? But I do remember those anxiety attacks 
when I was without alcohol. And I remember in that same period, my girlfriend was asleep in the, in the bedroom and, and it was like three o'clock in the morning and something came over me and I just had to rearrange all of the furniture in the entire apartment. And, and that's mania, if, if anything. And, um, I think back to other times where like, where like there would just be days where I couldn't leave the house and there would be days where like, where I couldn't drink enough. Like I just could like, man, I was, and and then there were times where I like two drinks and I would feel like I, I was just a slug. It wouldn't ever make sense why sometimes two drinks would make me feel so sleepy. And then other times I could drink for a week straight and 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 not be tired and i and i just was like so confused by that but that you know it makes perfect sense once the diagnosis is there and my mind is clear enough to actually have those memories if you go back in time in your head i've been doing this recently can you think back to when bipolar started showing up in your life that's a really interesting question i remember the first time i was seriously depressed um, and that was when I attempted to go to college. Um, I remember just getting to a point where I wasn't eating and I wasn't, I wasn't, I couldn't sleep enough and I just couldn't leave my dorm room and I just hated everything. And that's when I dropped out and I couldn't figure, and I just thought I just hate, I just thought I hated college and I wasn't even really drinking yet at that point. But that's the first time I remember a real down though. Honestly, like going back to when I was a little kid, I I had suicidal thoughts as like a seven year old, maybe younger. I remember uh, I remember telling, like, actually reaching out and talking to my mom about it when I was in sixth grade. So I mean, it's 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 been a long time that there's been just like a wanting to not be around. Just and I don't know if that's alcoholism or if that's the bipolar. You know what I mean? Because alcoholism for me is like I want oblivion. You know, I want I drank to black out. I drank to turn the fuck off. And um and I and I've just always wanted that. I've always just not wanted to be there for anything. <laughs> And, but the first, I, yeah. And then the first time that I remember it being like genuine depression and not just wanting to be gone was um, when I was 18. What things have you found that help you manage bipolar? Fruit, vegetables, exercise. Mm-hmm. Number one. Wow. When I feel down for like more than a day, uh, it will, yeah, and it's it's one of those things where like if I'm feeling a little bit down, it's not as bad as it used to be because I'm medicated and and stuff like that. But I usually start to realize it after a day or so of just being like, why don't I want to do it? Oh yeah, I'm bipolar. And then I and then I eat vegetables, and then once that's in me, I, I like maybe go for a bike ride the next day, and that usually brings me out of it. Wow. I'm curious, are there particular kinds of vegetables you found work well for you? Oh, I mean, I don't know, man. I, I like, you know, I'm I'm like a Seattle guy, so I like kale and spinach and God, that sort of stuff. <laughs> Some obscure Hungarian root vegetable that no one's ever heard no, of. No, right? I'm not one of those. <laughs> uh, but like, I I make like a a juice sometimes with like a like kale and spinach and carrots and stuff like that. Yeah. And like, you know, I know, and, and it's, it's when I stop doing that, honestly, like when I stop doing it regularly is, is on usually a pretty good sign that, uh, that I'm not feeling good because all I want is pizza 
and cheeseburgers and stuff. And again, this is this is alcoholism, right? Like like I revel in that. Like there's something to me that is just so good about disappearing. It's so fucking fun. And I'm not going to lie, like I sometimes I just stay in it. Sometimes it's fun, but then, you know, I forget to pay bills. <laughs> And, and my work isn't as good and, you know, I miss social functions and, um, and it's never anything life threatening anymore because I, I, you know, I still do, I still, because I I think because I'm medicated, I still haven't, I still hang on to enough that like it never gets as bad as it was. And then I, I usually find kale again. Sooner or later. Sooner or later. <laughs> okay, you find the kale. I find my way back into that Whole Foods. So you still take Lamotridine? Mm-hmm. 200 I, mils, baby. 200 mils. I learned something interesting today about Lamotridine, which I didn't know, which I'm going to share with you. Mm. Uh, Lamotridine is, uh, you know, mood stabilizer, as you know. It is more effective for people who tend more towards depression mm. than people who tend more towards mania. Mm-hmm. My psychiatrist described it as having a soft cap on mania, I guess, meaning that, you know, it will kind of keep the lid on it a little bit. But like if you're pushing into a manic state, like you just blow through that and then like it's not doing anything for you. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, everything I've described so far, except one example, has been depression. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the mania is far less frequent for yeah. me. Yeah. Do you know are we diagnosed with type one or type two? Uh, someone said something at some point but i don't listen yeah uh my thing is somebody tells me a solution and i go that direction i don't really ask too many questions about the problem nice yeah i mean i based on what you said our experiences are very similar i tend more towards depression than i do towards the mania i don't think i've ever been like full-blown manic you know never experienced psychosis i think i've got close a few times but um so you know that's more characteristic of type two yeah okay great yeah type two it is man (laughs) um but but please go check that with uh, somebody actually knows what they're talking about because make sure like check back get on psychology today and check their references don't don't uh diagnose yourself from a cereal packet yeah alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease bipolar is not (laughs) (laughs) that's the point of this episode Outside of medication, you know, any therapies or anything you tried to? I mean, aside from like um, the solution I have found for alcoholism, aside from that, I don't really do any any sort of like um, self-work stuff. Uh, I mean, I have a psychiatrist and we have like 45-minute sessions once a month and we just kind of check in. And then, you know, I, I, I do the other stuff and uh, I'm, not, I'm not like into uh, insight therapy and I don't read self-help books and I don't do yoga. And I mean, I like fruit. I like vegetables yeah. and I like riding a bike. That's and, nice. And, um, and I mean, I try to think of, of life as meaningless. Like that's really helpful. That's actually super beneficial to me. And it sounds counterintuitive, um, but whenever I'm like in a mode where I don't want to do something or something seems too difficult or I'm stressed about something. 
um, I just remember, I remind myself that none of, like literally none of what I'm doing in that moment matters in the grand scheme. Like my job couldn't mean less. You know, we, we process credit cards, right? And I manage people and I remind them of that. I go, I go, I mean, it's a good, I like, they'll be stressed out about something, a deadline or a merchant or whatever. And I go, well, it's a good thing that like what we do couldn't matter less. Like none of this matters and we're all going to die. And who gives a shit about fake money? Do you know what I mean? Like we pro, we, we move, we digitally move around the idea of money. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so like, which money itself is just an idea. And we move around the idea of an idea and it just couldn't matter less. It would be much more fun if we were just moving piles of money around. The right. Like right. But even then, but even like, then it's yeah. just paper. It's just paper or metal and none of it matters, man. The only thing that actually matters is like if I'm being kind to somebody in a given moment. You know what I mean? If if the experience that I'm bringing to someone else's life is useful because that's the only thing that I find fulfilling. Having my boss go good job doesn't mean shit. But what actually means something is that knowing that the thing that I did helped someone in some way. Um, and so I, I, I try to remember that. And that, like that, I think that mindset is very helpful for people who struggle with any sort of depression or anxiety. You put effort into finding the meaning and purpose in your work. Right. Yeah. In, in, any, in any work, right? Um, and, and just in any given moment, right? Like, cause if I'm feeling shitty and useless, like, well, what's, what's going to make me feel useful, right? Oh, maybe I'll volunteer somewhere this week, or maybe I'll like go give a sandwich to someone. And not that I do a lot of that, but like, you know, what can I do? Like, maybe I'll bring my neighbor's trash cans in. It's just little tiny stuff. Maybe I'll say hi to a stranger in a way that's non-threatening, you know? <laughs> Maybe I'll tip somebody well today. Um, and, and just, it's just like that sort of stuff feels good. And it's been proven to, to make a big difference to, to mental health and also to like, you know, longevity and things like that. People have an attitude of service, right? Right. It's such a con. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's such a, it's such a, just a, a humendous, uh, is that a word? <laughs> it is now. Human. What am I thinking? Humendous. Humongous. I'm humongous what you're and stupendous. <laughs> there we go. Um, it's such a gigantic con. I'm tricking the world when I'm nice. You know what I mean? When I do good things, like everybody likes me and thinks I'm so altruistic. But at the same time, like it, there could be, there is nothing that f actually feels better. So, you know. Joke's on you. Haha, <laughs> 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 world. <laughs> yeah, haha, -ha, suckers. But the hard part is you got to mean it. Yeah. You got to actually mean it because if you're doing something for the wrong reason, it often yeah. bleeds through. Let's talk a little more about the work that mm -hmm. you do. Mm -hmm. How does bipolar show up in your work? Uh, but being in the office is tough sometimes, man. It's really tough to to go like a full, I don't know how people do it go like a full eight hours other times it's a breeze other times like um my body's remarkable and my brain is remarkable in that once i get into a pace of that i used to get to the office before everyone i would leave after everyone i would work through lunch and that's kind of i guess that mania and then there's other times where i sleep through my alarm and it's hard and it's very hard for me to get to work working from home is nice because i have to travel like once a month and um, I used to travel twice a month when I was doing sales training. I would go to our, our markets and work with sales reps. 
And one of my one of my shrinks, a uh, a registered nurse practitioner, she told me a or no, she was a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and she told me that having a job where you travel a fair amount can often be really good for people with bipolar, because what often happens is when we have the same day to day over and over again, that's when like the 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 slumps or or the the spurts show up. Because our brains get too used to the repetitive tasks. I have literally been told exactly the opposite thing. Interesting. Couldn't be more diametrically opposite, which is that the challenge for people who work with bipolar and travel a lot is the kind of breaking up of routine. Oh man, I'm telling you, I had I was getting more done in the period where I was traveling twice a month than I have ever gotten done in my entire life. I was doing a podcast. I was I was actively involved in like my uh my you know recovering alcoholic stuff. I had a girlfriend, I had a podcast, I was doing stand-up comedy, I was making and selling cold brew coffee to a local coffee shop. Uh I was doing so much stuff and I managed all of it like effortlessly. It was amazing. And I did that for like a whole year. When you're describing all those things that you're doing and you describe them as like, oh, it was effortless, mm-hmm. I can't help but feel there might have been some mania going on there. But not for a whole year. Can happen. Maybe. I don't know. How else does bipolar show up in your work? That's, I mean, honestly, it's just, it's just, it's just bouts of lethargy versus bouts of like um, being just beyond efficient and, and, and like not having enough work to do, I guess. Um, which is good, you know, it's, uh, which I think honestly like tricks people into thinking that I have like a healthy work-life balance. <laughs> because you're really slow sometimes and fast other times? Or yeah, just, yeah, yeah, because it's like, you know, that guy really knows how to like take a break, <laughs> but he also gets things done. Um, but what they don't know is that, that those are like requirements for like my brain chemicals. I, I do honestly think with bipolar, it's a mental illness that, in some ways can be really attractive to an employer. Absolutely. Those, those periods of like getting shit done, you know, right. like you can cover a lot of ground. And also I think my experience has been that I, I'm more willing to take risks than most people are. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Same. yeah, fuck it. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Absolutely. We're all going to die. None of this matters. <laughs> exactly. Which Same. I associate with being, you know, it's, it's a bipolar trait. And so, you know, a risk taker who's going to work really hard, like that starts to sound super attractive unless yeah. that risk taker is like, you know, crashing $4 billion of you know, market capitalization of your company. But, sure, 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 you know. sure, 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 sure. Well, you know, and there's that. Listening back to this section, it's surprising how simple Daniel's solution to his alcoholism and bipolar is. He tries to eat a healthy diet. He cycles. He's part of a recovery community. He keeps his job in perspective and tries to perform little acts of kindness. Diet, exercise, community, meaning in life and work. And of course, there's meaning in knowing that there's no meaning. These four simple things are a prescription for anyone to try to live with more peace in their life. And while it might be a luxury for some, it's a necessity for someone like Daniel to approach their life in that way. In the last section, we'll talk about Daniel's career as a comedian 
and how Bipolar shows up as two different comedians. And Daniel concludes the walk through his life story by reflecting on where he is and whether he's happy with who he's become. My observation is that, you know, you do stand-up comedy and you are uh, have been a host for a number of events for mm-hmm. us at the company. And I get that you're a stand-up comedian, but I've got to believe also somewhere wrapped into that is some of the bipolar. Oh, 100%, yeah. As well, right? And And that, actually, you know what? It affects that more than it affects my day job because I have, there are different comedians that come out. You know, there's, there's someone who's a lot more low energy and, and snide and uh, like a somehow likable arrogance comes out of me. And then there are other times where the material, where it's, it's, and, and that stuff is a lot more loose and a lot more reactionary to the room and just kind of like vibing off of what's going on and interacting with the audience a bit more. It's like a fireside chat is what I refer to it as. And then there's this other guy that comes out sometimes and he is much faster and much quicker and much more into material and like, and it's better pacing and a better energy. And I have no control over which one is coming out. And like until you get up there. I, when I'm up there, I can't. I can't switch. Yeah. Oh, I, maybe I can. I don't know. I've gotten better at recognizing what's going on in in like sobriety, but before there was no there was no control over that. I've had the fortune of hosting a variety of events over the years, and what I've noticed is that for me, I think it's always the same person that comes out, but it's like I flip into a little bit of kind of mania, you know, like cracking jokes and being energetic and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um but i guess like if you're hosting a corporate event or something that's kind of necessary i don't think anyone wants the sardonic low energy and yet there i am (laughs) (laughs) and yet there i am standing in front of the entire room going nobody ever said i want to be a credit card processor when i grow up what we do means nothing guys (laughs) Anyway, here's Tammy with some (laughs) quarterly numbers or whatever. (laughs) Like it matters, Tammy. (laughs) And that's what I do. It's true. (laughs) I've never exactly seen that, but I've seen enough examples of you hosting to believe that that actually has happened. That I get almost verbatim. Anything else you want to say on the topic of uh, bipolar in your comedy? It is my comedy. It, it's, you know, when somebody said after a show recently, maybe it was a year ago, he said, you make, it wasn't the saddest things. It was the, mo- maybe it was the most morbid. He was like, you make the most morbid things so fucking funny. Um, Cause that's what I do. Like that's, that's my, my comedy is both things at the same time. It is, it is, it is deadpan talking to people about the spine tumors mm-hmm. and rehab and rupturing my spleen and using catheters and having MRIs and like, you know, nerve damage and like all this stuff and, and just making it fun, making it goofball, but at the same time being extremely earnest and, and very serious. Um, and it's confusing to people at first. You know, they, they say that there's, there's a lot of mental illness in stand-up comedy. And I think that that's what it is. It's, it's that, it's that I can be joyous in a time of complete despair. It's like if you've been to the edge of madness or beyond that edge, mm-hmm. I sometimes think you're free. 
you know that that panic phone call to my dad in Central yeah. Park was like a a moment where like that was the brink of a nervous breakdown. You know what I mean? And then those moments of anxiety attacks that left me crying on the floor were the brink of a nervous breakdown. And actually thinking back, I had a couple of pretty major anxiety attacks before that that I'd kind of forgotten about. I remember one time my buddy and I road trip to Salt Lake City and we were going to split the driving because it's it's about a 14, 16 hour drive when you get gas and food and stuff like that. And we were going to drive eight hours each and then the other guy could rest. And he's a dick. And at about hour seven of my driving, that's when he fell asleep. And then and then he kept going like, ah, oh, let's just sleep through the night and we'll go tomorrow. And I wasn't going to do that. And so I just kept driving and I must have had like six energy drinks and like nothing to eat. And when we got there, I just lost my mind. Uh, it was cool. <laughs> it was really chill. <laughs> and then I got really drunk and fell off a balcony. Anyway. Story for another time. Yeah. Dual diagnosis. <laughs> Very common. Common comorbidity. If you could go back to, let's just say, like the start of your life or to an earlier point in your life and you could switch off your bipolar, mm-hmm. and like it's just like never a thing, never plays a role in your life. Mm-hmm. Would you do it? No. May I mean maybe. I don't know, just to see what happens, maybe. But like I like my life, man. It's really good. What is it that you like? I mean, so there've been some downsides, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, innumerable. Yeah, like the <laughs> you know, New York, uh, you know, uh, Yeah, but what a gift. Right, man? I think, you know, here's the thing, like my life has been real rocky at points, but I'm telling you uh, and this is, you know, going to sound real cocky, but people look up to me for some fucking reason. You know what I mean? People think I, my my shrink once told me that I was very wise, <laughs> you know, and uh, and like I, w- I don't want to not have that. Like, I love the perspective that this stuff has given me, man. And like. I find also like, dude, I'm fucking cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you spend enough time in some ICUs and you're cool. <laughs> what do you want the world to know about alcoholism, bipolar, the combination of alcoholism, bipolar? Like, I mean, you know, the only thing that like that ever bums me out is when like I'll watch like forensic files or whatever because I just love that. And there will be like some asshole cop who's like talking about like, an addict or a person with mental illness, like they're a deranged psychopath. Do you know what I mean? And they'll be like, oh man, they shot that guy because they just wanted to get high again or whatever. And I'm like, no, that's not why. It's because they could not see another option. They're physically and mentally was no alternative to them. Like there has to be some sort of accountability, I guess, right? And, and, And whether that's, you know, mental health treatment, or jail or whatever, but like, we don't have to hate people for that crime. There's so many things that I've done and so many things that people I know have done and they just did, they didn't mean to, they didn't want to. I mean, in the moment, maybe they thought they wanted to, maybe they even fucking kind of wanted to, but like, but like, that's not them. So last question. Okay. You go back in time to somewhere on your journey Mm -hmm. and you could tell yourself something. Mm -hmm. When would you go and what would you tell yourself? Where, who, which, which little Danny would I go talk to? Um, <laughs> I kind of want to say something so dumb. <laughs> Feel free to save that for, say that first and then we can go with something yeah, yeah, else. Yeah, 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 I was going to say, and oh man, 
Like, what if I just, what if I just, what if you asked that and my immediate response was, <laughs> I'd go back to five-year-old me and tell him, fucking do it. <laughs> Jump out of the car, pussy. Um, <laughs> I, what, what would have happened? I would have done it. Yeah. You kidding me? Future me shows up, boom, backseat of the old man's car. I'm out that. I'm gone. Just on no, account of ghosts. No, I get that. But like, you know, like, do you roll down the freeway? You know, do well, you survive? I was, I mean, What's I, your expectation? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, what if I survived? And like, honestly, like, that's one of the reasons that I never did it. It's just like, what if I lived? My dad would be so much madder than he already gets. <laughs> Man, I don't know. I don't know if I would. Like, I, I feel like, I feel like future advice is like, it's scary. It's, it's, it's like, and you know, like, here's the thing, man. Like, I don't always know what's good for me. I certainly don't know what's good for me in the moment a lot of times. I can't imagine knowing what's good for me in the past. Um, and so, like, I like you. I am a risk taker. I am, I am not averse to rolling the dice and, or, or going with my gut, but like, I'd rather go with my gut in the moment than like go back and change something because like, because again, none of this matters, dude. <laughs> none of it matters. So why would I change it? But that's just a wasted thing I could be doing right now, going back in time to change something. I've got the sense through talking to you that you are, and maybe always have been to an extent, pretty comfortable with who you are. Not on a dance floor, but most other places, yeah. I'm very, I'm very, I'm very, uh, I have a lot of gifts. You know what I mean? Like I'm very good at talking. Um, I'm pretty funny. I'm I'm good at most things um that aren't I don't know. I'm you know, I I'm uh I don't know. I'm good at stuff. And so it took some time. I was not always this way. I mean, I've always I've always kind of faked it. Um but it wasn't until like again, until I really got into the drinking, I think that like and maybe I just don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. But that I and and doing stand up and and like and actually being like applauded for my good behavior and and finally having that because and not to say and, I, and you know I, I've I've talked a little negatively about my father and stuff like that but it's not to say that I was never like commended for good stuff because I certainly was but not the degree and in the instant that that I get it from doing comedy and like and having a professional career and and things like that where um when I do things they're rewarded immediately. And so, like, you know, as things like that have happened, um, I've definitely become fairly self-aware and fairly confident and fairly comfortable. Nice. Which sometimes comes off as cocky until yeah. people realize I can back it the fuck up. Feels like maybe your journey then is just you've learned to inhabit yourself. Yeah, I mean, because because why not? I often make this analogy to people where when I know that they're stressing out, I put my arms out and I go, man, this is literally all, all I can control. You know, like what's in here? What is inside these arms is the only thing I can control. I can move this table. You know what I mean? I can move my legs. I can walk over there and, and, and have control over that. But outside of that, I got nothing. And so why not inhabit myself? It's all I can inhabit, dude. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Uh, I don't know, man. Take it easy. <laughs> I don't know. Take it easy is a good place to end. Cool. All right, man. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Daniel is a really funny guy. His acerbic wit, fatalist outlook, and deadpan delivery meant that I spent a lot of time during this recording laughing. I had to cut out all sorts of asides that were 
funny, but making the episode too long. Listening back, it's easy to forget that we were talking about topics that at times were pretty grim. For example, Daniel's parents performing an intervention or losing all hope and giving up on life in Central Park. But these things are all a matter of perspective. Looking back, you can choose to look at your life through the lens of shame and regret, or like Daniel, you can decide it doesn't really matter and find the comedy in getting life advice from a homeless lady. And hey, even if you didn't get anything out of this story, it's nice for me to have someone to not drink with at company events. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Silent Superheroes. It helps others find the podcast if you would leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can follow us at facebook.com forward slash silent superheroes or sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.